Hi everyone, welcome aboard the Tanya series where we're going to get much deeper insight into our belief in God, into who we are and why we're here and the bigger picture of things. Let me just give you a summary of what what is the Tanya. The Tanya was a book written by the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe's name is Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi. He lived a few hundred years ago. He was a direct descendant of the Maharal of Prague and he based a lot of his work on the teachings of Kabbalah. Um, these teachings are fascinating and a true gift for every Jewish person. Every Jewish person has a commandment to believe in God. But what exactly are we believing in? What What is this God? Who is this God? What does it mean to believe in God? Um, the Tanya sheds so much light on this and really helps us understand more of what God is and um, really can strengthen and um, help us actually believe in God. So to me, this is incredibly empowering to learn this subject, to learn this book, and it's a pleasure to share it with you. There are actually five sections of the Tanya. Now we're going to the second section, which is the section that focuses on belief in God specifically. Maybe one day we'll get to the other ones as well. But for now, we're talking about the section of belief in God. Okay, so it starts off saying that this second section is actually called Chinuch Katan. Chinuch Katan means the education of the child. Now, you may know a quote about education of a child, which is educate the child according to his way and even as he grows old he won't part from it and this is uh, written by King Solomon in Proverbs okay you may have heard that quote before now tell me something is strange about this quote educate the child according to his way and even as he grows old he won't depart from it do we really want fully grown adults behaving in the way that they were taught as children? Don't we want them to develop somewhat from the way we taught them as children? Maybe we taught them in a very childish way. Maybe we taught them in a way that's very, well, maybe babyish, maybe immature. Maybe their intellect has developed since then. Maybe they have a much deeper understanding by the time they're an adult. Why, why is it a good thing that a child won't depart from the way we taught them as they were a child? So this is the first question Rabbi Shneur Zalman asks. And let's explain. Let's first try to understand what exactly are we educating children? what is the core that's going to trigger them to either yes want 
to fulfill the commandments or no um not want to go against god's word what what are we giving them that is going to be the reason behind everything they're going to do and the Alter Rebbe explains when I say Alter Rebbe, I mean Rebbe Shneir Zalman of Liadi. Um, he explains that there are two roots of serving God. There's love of God and fear of God. If someone loves God, they're going to want to do those things that God said to do. If someone fears God, now when we say fear, we don't mean like a phobia. We don't mean there's something scary hanging over us. We mean a, a great awe, like standing in front of a king or a queen. You know, someone won't pull their phone out in front. Someone won't want to mess up. Someone won't want to say, let's say, bad language um, or even any language that's out of place. Someone's very, very on guard when they're in front of a presence that puts them in a state of awe. And it's that kind of awe. When I when I say fear of God, I, I mean awe. This awe that we have of God's presence. Now, someone who has awe, they will not want to do anything against God's will. So, it's the awe that makes someone not want to do something that's forbidden. Now, since we're educating a child also to fulfill the mitzvot, to fulfill the commandments, therefore we have to give this child a love of God. If we give this child a love of God, that love will help that child actually want to fulfill all the commandments. Now, you could see this in a regular relationship. When you have one person who loves another person, it will make them naturally want to do kind things for that person, do acts of service for that person, do what the other person wants, right? Now, the love that we instill in a child, this love of God that we instill in a child, this is what's talking about in the verse, educate a child according to his way, so that even as he grows old, he will not part from it. If the child has this love, then that love can come with him or her, even as an adult, and it can strengthen that person's relationship with God and commandments because they have this love that came with them from their childhood. And it's actually a quality. And Alter Rabbit is going to talk about different kinds of love of God and we will realize how this basic simple love is actually a quality that the person can hold on to even as they're an adult. Okay, so last time we spoke about how this section of Tanya opens up with a discussion on what does it mean to educate the child according to his way even as he grows old he won't depart from it and we spoke about giving a child a love of God that will carry him through the rest of his life stay with him and that there's actually a quality 
to this love that the child inherited or was instilled in the child as a child. Um, now, where is the commandment about loving God? This is in the in the Torah portion of Akev. It says, Asher Hashem, which I command you to do to love God. Okay, so what does it mean to do to love God? What are you doing if you're feeling? Besides for feeling. How do you do love? And how exactly are we being commanded to feel anything? How can you tell someone what to feel? So, um, the author is going to explain that actually we're able to do things that will foster this love. Okay. The Alter Rav is going to explain us that there are actually two kinds of love. One kind of love is very, very natural. It's the love of our soul, natural soul that wants to be connected to its creator. Like a flame wants to reunite with its source, the sun, the soul naturally wants to reunite with its creator. And that's a very natural feeling problem with this love is that because we don't just have a soul because we also live inside the body and we have animalistic soul as well so we live surrounded by very physical things very physical needs and kind of quietens down this soul inside us that's desperate to love God so we don't actually typically feel this love that our soul naturally has and this is one kind of love so even though it's natural most people don't really get to know this kind of love so this kind of love we can't really do anything about we can't really we can't really foster it. It's there, it's natural, it's part of us, but it's so, so quiet that we just mostly don't get to know it. Okay, but there is a second kind of love. Um, and this second kind of love is the one we're going to focus on now because this second kind of love is the one that the Alter Rebbe says every single person can access this kind of love. Because what it takes is a little bit of thinking, a little bit of meditation, concentration, contemplation, thinking about God, thinking about how much God loves us. And the Alter Rebbe is going to give us some ideas what to contemplate on. And right now, these ideas are mentioned briefly. However, in other parts of the Tanya, um, not right now, in other parts of the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe does go into them at greater length. But here we'll go through, um, in short, some ideas. What can a person think about that will help create this love, this second kind of love? 
Okay, so just to summarize, the first kind of love we said is a very natural love. It's a love from the soul wanting to connect with its creator. Only problem is most people do not feel it because we also have a body and we live a very physical life. We don't always hear that very deep love inside us from our soul to God. Uh, more often than not, most people will not ever get to know this love okay but the second kind of love this is the one we're concentrating on this is the one that all it takes is some thinking and some contemplating and then we help nurture this type of love now you can really apply this to any relationship as well anytime you have two friends or husband and wife and they want to strengthen their relationship so what it takes is a little bit of contemplation pause think think through what you're grateful for about the other person think through what the other person did for you think through what you like about the other person right and then it helps nurture the emotions as well it helps strengthen those emotions as well so um we know even in, not just in friendships, even in subjects, someone can have one view, right? Um, let's say we could take smoking. Someone can have a certain view of smoking and then they might have, they might learn a lot about it. And when they start thinking about different effects it can have, they might have a totally different view on it. Um, so we know not just a totally different view they might even develop a hatred for example to smoking that's a very very strong emotion and all that really created that emotion was a little bit of thinking or a lot of thinking but we know how thinking about something learning about something actually nurtures the emotions and the same thing is with god and with loving god is that even someone who thinks that they don't love god if they use these tools to think specific things about god then it will nurture a love for god it might not happen that very day it might take a little bit of time but it's something that's worth it and it's something that will really, really can work, okay? Um, this is something that every single person is capable of. Okay, so let's go through a few of these meditations. One of them is um, we can think about how God is really our very life because God is giving us our life who is the driving force behind the soul inside us that is making sure our body is not just a dead body but a live body who is that drive it's god and uh, when we think about how if someone is happy with their life and their being alive and their self then they can think that it's god who is giving them this life and that can lead to love of god Another thing that you can do is um, to think about how great God is, that he's the king of all kings. 
he is so great. He's much greater than anything or anyone or any creation. He fills all the worlds. All the creatures in the world are nothing compared to him. Another meditation can be how we can think about how God loved the Jewish people so much that he took them out of Egypt. Instead of leaving them in Egypt, he took them out of Egypt and he um, gave them the Torah. That's something that can maybe arouse a person's love. And when a person spends this time focusing um, on God's greatness, but also on how much God loves him or her, when we think how much God loves us, and we could think practically not just about Egypt and the Torah. We could think about how much God loves us. We could think of a blessing in our life that we have. And we can feel how much God loves us from that specific blessing in our life. When we feel how much God loves us, then it, it's like reciprocation. And we, it, we, we will naturally respond with a love back to God. And you find this in relationships as well. If one friend reaches out, if one friend is trying their best for the relationship, it will it will help the other the other one realize how much love they feel and they will want to give love back. Okay, so now we know that there's a love that's connected with doing. Because what are we doing? We're taking action. For this love, we need to take action. We need to think. We need to think about God, how great he is, and how much he loves us. And that will nurture our love back. And even in the Shema prayer, we say, These words which I command you shall be upon your heart. What does that mean? It means that through meditation, we will come to love God. Now, to recap from last time, we spoke about two kinds of love. The lower kind of love, um, sorry, the first kind of love is a natural love. The soul just naturally loves God. The only problem is that because we live in a body, we don't just have a soul, we most likely don't encounter this kind of love. We don't really get to know this kind of love. There is another kind of love that requires action on our part to nurture, but every single person is capable of nurturing it. You don't have to be great. You don't have to be holy in order to nurture this kind of love. All you need to do is Think about God. Think about his greatness. Think about how much he loves you. And that will nurture your love of God. And now we're going to understand the verse, educate a child according to his way, so that even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. Because even somebody who did manage to tap into this natural soul love, even the person like that, needs the basic kind of love, needs the love born out of contemplation 
throughout his life because he will have times in his life, he or she will have times in, in their life that they will need to go back to hold on to this love that came to them out of contemplation. Now, how do we bring about love and fear of God? Well, in order to bring about love and fear of God, we need to bring about a belief in God. We need to really believe in God and how he is one. We're going to learn what does it mean that God is one. Does it mean there's only one God? No, it actually means that everything is God. That God is everything. And everything is nullified to God. That means everything only exists because of God. And everything is really only an expression of God. Um, which is really, really fascinating. We're going to learn in more detail exactly what's going on. Okay, let's take a look at a verse in Deuteronomy. This is when Moses is talking to the Jewish people before he passed away. Um, and he says, Know this day, take it to your heart. God is the Lord in the heavens above and upon the earth below. There is none other. So what does it mean there is none other? Does it mean there is no other God? What what do we have to take to heart? Let's take a look at another verse which says uh, this is a verse from Tehillim, from Psalm written by King David and this verse says Forever, God, your word stands in the heavens. So, what does it mean that God's word is standing in the heavens forever? The Baal Shem Tov explained this concept. This is how he explained it. Um, what does it mean, your word? Your word are the words God used to create the world. There were ten sayings that God used to create the world. These are called ten utterances. Okay, so if you look at Genesis in the first Torah portion, Bereshit, and you'll see that God created the world. When you read that story, you'll see ten things that God said. Let there be this and let there be that. Um, for example... Let there be a heaven. Um, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Okay, that's when the waters separated. Because until then it was all water, and then the waters separated to make sky above. Um, now, these things that God said, these utterances that God said, are still standing. These expressions are still standing forever. We're going to learn what does that mean, a standing forever. It means that they are still giving energy to the world. They're still giving life to this world. Every single creation in the world, until today, until this very second, is getting all its energy and life 
from God's utterances that are still being spoken, they're still being said until today, um, which is really, really cool to think about. Every single thing, every single moment is getting new energy and new life from God. And that's what it means when it says, forever, God, your words are standing in the heaven. Forever. These words that God used to create the world are still creating the world. They didn't just create the world five, seven, eight, three years ago. They are still, they have been creating the world from that moment until now. And the Baal Shem Tov explained that if these letters of the alphabet that were used to utter these utterances, if these letters would stop, if God would stop saying these letters and God would remove these utterances, then the entire world and the entire creation would disappear, would stop living because it's these letters that is giving energy to the entire world. Um, now the Arizal explained that even things that we think don't really have much energy in them, for example a stone, even those things are receiving a life force every single moment from these letters of the alphabet. Every single moment, these letters have power to them. They're not just letters, they, they are powerful. Each one has a creative energy to it, a formula. Each one is creating some energy and different combinations of these letters work together to create different things. That's why there are different words. Each word expresses the energy that's been given to it. Now we use the example of a big big battery. If you would try to put a mass battery into a watch for example, right? Like it's too much for the watch to handle. Yes? And in the same way you have the ten utterances themselves which created the most massive things, the most main things in the, ten, in the six days of creation. Um, and then you have things like down to a stone and a leaf and a, a blade of grass, a little insect, right? You have tiny, tiny, tiny creations or microscopic creations even. Um, so what these letters of the alphabet had to do is they had to go on a little journey to get, like, to shrink the energy. Because just like we said, you cannot put a massive battery into a very small object you have to actually put the right size battery in in the same way that 10 utterances are so powerful they have so much energy in them and what we have in this, these very very tiny creations is we have like a more condensed um shrinked version of the energy but still it's still godly energy and it still comes from the alphabet but the alphabet letters had to go on a little journey they had to switch around mix up change orders until they have new energies and they can create 
smaller and smaller and smaller things. Um, and Althrab actually explains in more detail how these Alphabet powers are switched up, but I'm not going to that detail today. Okay, so last time we discussed how God is still creating the world every second until today. Now the Altarava says that there are some people who believe that God made the world, but they think that God made the world and then left it up to us. They don't believe in divine providence. They don't believe that God actually cares about every single creation about every single one, how we're doing, how our day is going, what is, how, if he's arranging things for us, if he's setting things up exactly the way they're meant to be until today. They think, okay, we believe God made the world back then, and that's it. He, he left it now up to the creations um, to deal with it, right? He took a back seat. Um, <clears throat> the author ever says that this is a mistake, and he's going to explain that they are imagining that the way God made the world is similar to the way a human being creates something. But there is a massive difference with the way a human being creates something and the way God made the world. And this is the difference. Um, if you have a silversmith who uh, made his... his silverware right that piece that he made now it's not dependent on him anymore right it stands all by itself right um anything that we make we take a piece of clay we form something out of it now we could just leave the clay and that's it we don't have to look at it we don't have to touch it we don't have to keep our hands on it it just stays right um, and that's how they imagined that God made the world, you know, he formed something and he left it. Now, the difference is that the human being is making something out of material that already exists. So the human being is taking silver that actually exists already, and he's just moving it around and bending it and changing its shape. Um... God, on the other hand, when he created the world, there was no material there. There was nothing. God created the world. It's called something from nothing. Yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. But man creates things, yesh me'esh, something from something else. And that's why a man, a human, can leave their creations and let them rest. And um, God has to keep the energy going because something that's created something from nothing the energy has to keep um, going the whole time um, you can even understand this with anything that defies nature anything that defies a rule of nature you have to constantly press it you have to constantly activate it in order to keep it going for example gravity um, if you want something to go against gravity then you're fighting the rules of nature you have to constantly keep it up so you put the engine in the plane to constantly keep the plane up right uh, if you throw a stone the force of your hand isn't enough to just keep the stone flying forever the stone eventually lands as soon as your energy um, left the stone 
The Alter Rebbe actually gives the example of the miracle of the splitting of the sea. Because that's going against nature. The sea naturally flows. The sea nat naturally does not stand up. So for God to make the miracle, God had to constantly push the sea up. So there was a strong east wind all night. That was God making a strong wind blow all night to keep the sea as a wall. Because this wall is completely against the nature of the water. So even when something has to change natures, you have to constantly activate it and keep it going. And as soon as, if, as soon as God would stop the wind, that's it. The sea would go back to normal, right? As soon as we stop activating something that we're trying to make go against nature, it just goes back to how it was. And um, if that's the case with things that already exist, but just they have a certain natural rule to them, uh, they're just bound by a certain rule of nature, but they actually already exist, then how much more so with things that completely didn't exist to begin with. And now they're actually full, proper creations. Obviously, there is a, a permanent energy going into them, the constant energy going into them the whole time. As soon as that energy departs, that creation is going to cease to exist. Now, there's a verse in Nehemiah that says, You give life to them all, meaning God is giving life to every single creation. Um, he's actually not just giving them life, he's actually putting life into them. He's, he's actually creating them, um, making them exist. Now, there's actually a little hint to what's going on. How How is God giving them life? In the word Ata and you. Ata is actually an acronym. Aleph is the first letter of the alphabet. Taf is the last letter of the alphabet, so we have now um, representation of the, all the letters of the alphabet, which are the letters that we already know God is using to power up the world. And the last letter of the word Atta is He. He is the number five. Um, and that's five organs of verbal articulation. Um, and it's hinting that these alphabet letters are constantly being said and uttered, and that's why, uh, that's how there is power going into the world. Now, just to clarify, we know that God is not a body, and we don't compare God to a body. So what does it mean when we say God speaks, God said, God spoke? What does that even mean? Um, it's not like he has a mouth, right? So, the we use the word spoke or speech or uttered because that's the way that our mind can understand what's going on. When we when we say these words, we're we're meaning that God is revealing the twenty two letters. When He reveals the twenty two letters, that's what it means. And the same thing is when we say how God spoke to the prophets. You know, someone could say, what do you mean God spoke to the prophets? It's God a person that he speaks. And in the same way, God revealed the letters of the alphabet to the prophets. And we, in our um, human brains, we can understand it as speaking. That's the best way we can understand it. Um, 
But that's what he did. He revealed the letters of the alphabet to the prophets. And that's how they knew what he wanted to express to them. Just like when a person speaks, what, what does it mean? A person spoke. It means he revealed what he's thinking. He revealed the words that he was trying to express. The same thing is when we say God spoke, we mean that he revealed those letters. So to summarize what we said today is that um, unlike the mistake, mistaken belief that people may come to, which is that God um, made the world and then left it, there is actually um, there is actually divine providence, there is actually the concept of God constantly, constantly watching us, taking care of us, um, and actually constantly giving energy and life to this world. And if that energy and life stops for one moment, the entire world stops existing. More coming soon. Okay, last time we spoke about how um, God is constantly activating the world with the letters of the alphabet. Um, and if that energy stops, the entire world stops existing. So right away we can come to the understanding now that actually every single creation is totally dependent on God's energy. So the reality is that we are actually not uh creation we're not a full independent person we're not what we thought we were we're actually completely completely dependent on god that means we're pretty much nothing without god putting that energy into us now when we think about that it can make us question this contradiction because if the truth is that we're absolutely nothing and that we're only just an expression of God's energy and without that energy we, we really do go to nothing, um, then why is it that that's not the way we see things? Why is it that when we look at the world, when we look at each other, when we see and feel ourselves, why do we feel like we're separate entities? Why do we feel like we're our own independent creation? Why do we look outside and feel and see that the world is a, has so many independent creations? Why don't we just see this bright, powerful God shining through everything? If that's really what's going on. And the answer to that is that we have physical eyes. And our physical eyes are not able to see that bright light. Because if they were able to see that bright light, you know what we would see? We would be totally blinded to see anything physical. If we would be able to see that bright, powerful God shining through everything, if we would be able to see those alphabet, the energies of the alphabet shining through every single creation and, and keeping the entire world existing, we would absolutely see nothing else. We would see no physical things. We would not see people or creations the way that we do. Um, we would not experience the world in the same way. Because if you can imagine staring right into the sun and it blinds you, right? Um, the, same, the same kind of thing is if we would have that powerful, bright, godly energy right in front of our eyes that we could actually see we would be absolutely blinded 
to notice the physical the way we do notice the physical. So it's actually something God did to allow us to experience the physical world despite the reality that everything is totally dependent on God. And we will go, we will discuss this at a greater length. The Alter Rebbe actually is going to give an, another analogy to help us understand how we can see, we can perceive one thing, one reality um, in this physical world, yet at the same time we can understand that there is a different reality um, as, as far as God is concerned. So if you can imagine the light of the sun, okay, on the world, on the earth, we experience the sun down here. How do we experience it? We have sunlight, daylight. Um, it's so nice. That's how we experience it. A ray of light. So wonderful. We might not even see the sun itself in this world, but we do get to experience those rays. Um, and even we get to experience daylight, right? Even when we don't actually see the sun behind the clouds, we still have daylight. So it's wonderful. That's how we experience it down here. But now imagine you're standing right there in the sun. Now, nobody can actually physically do that. But imagine there was a way that someone could stand right there, right? Can you find daylight if you stand right there in the sun, in that pool? Can you find daylight? Where is daylight, right? Daylight is completely swallowed up and nullified to the sun itself. Right there in the sun, there's no daylight. You can't pick out a line of daylight. You, can, you cannot find a ray hiding in that sun. That sun is much, much stronger and more powerful. And that sun, that ray of light and that daylight is, is nothing compared to the sun itself. So it's only down here way, way, way uh, far from the sun that we can actually see the reality of daylight. You see, so here we feel daylight, here we feel radiance, here we feel rays of light. But there, by the sun, it's a different reality. At the sun, it's a different reality. Um, and the same thing is that we can apply this uh, analogy to our understanding of God's energy and us and the world that now in this world we see things we see the expressions of God as finite creations but really for God it's all just an expression of godliness everything in the world is just uttering those utterances it's just an expression of revelation of God that's all it is it's only in our world, down here with our physical eyes, that the way we see that things, the way we see ourselves, and the way we see the creations is as physical, independent beings. Now, there's only one catch to this um, analogy. And there's only one difference in the comparison with God and us, and the sun and sunlight. And that is that the sun is actually not present right here in this world it's not three feet away right it's it's not right here found in front of us it's very very far away but with God in us 
we know that actually we are completely united with our source at all times. All creations are completely united with the divine energy inside them. So it is a little different because we have God right, right with us here in this world. Yet we still perceive ourselves as separate entities. The Alter Rebbe will continue in the next chapter explaining how it can be that we have divine source, we're united with it, it's part of us, it's one with us, it's giving us energy the whole time, it's right there with us. God is right here with us in this world, yet we still don't feel nullified to him, we still don't feel like we're nothing compared to him, we still see ourselves as separate entities. How does that work? How did God make such a world that he had has creations that are really really just expressions of him yet they feel like totally separate entities how does it work so we'll find out in the next chapter last time we ended with a question how is it possible that god made the world that we feel and see that we are separate entities from god um, we feel totally independent, but the reality is that we are completely nothing compared to God and that we are totally dependent on his constant energy creating us. Um, so how can it be? How come we absolutely don't perceive, we don't feel, we don't realize that God is constantly giving us energy? Um, and the Alter Rabbi is going to explain it with a verse from Tehillim. It says, and that means a sun and a shield is Hashem Elokim. Now we know we've come across a few different names for God. And Alter is going to explain that each name of God actually um, has a different meaning to it. So we're going to look at two of the names of God here. One is Havaya. Hashem, we don't pronounce, we're careful not to actually pronounce it the way it's spelled. Um, so we say Havaya instead. And the other one is Elohim. Havaya is compared to the sun. The sun and the shield is Havaya Elohim. So the sun corresponds to the name Havaya. What's a sun? A sun is giving energy, a sun is giving light, right? Um, and the same thing is that the name of God called Havaya is the name that provides us with spiritual illumination. The name Havaya is the name that's giving energy to the world, giving the, giving the creations their energy and their light, just like the sun gives light, okay? But there is also another name called Elohim, and Elohim is compared to the shield. A shield protects us from the sun. A shield blocks us from getting too sunburnt. A shield stands in the way of the sun. And the same thing is that the shield that God has called Elohim, the name of God called Elohim, is actually going to kind of protect us from the intensity of the light of Havaya. And Alter Rebbe will explain it to us. 
because we cannot bear the strength and the power of the light of Avaya, the pure light of Avaya, that strong, strong power and energy. Us humans, we would not be able to bear it. We have the story of the Jews at Mount Sinai. They all passed out when they heard God's voice, right? When there's too much light and too much energy, a human being cannot handle it. So God needed to create the world. He needed to put all that energy in with the name Havaya. But at the same time, he needed to protect us. He needed to help us bear all that energy, help us handle all that light and all that energy. And the way he's helping us handle it is by putting the name Elohim there. And the name Elohim actually is uh, connected to the rules of nature. It's connected to the rules of the world, the patterns that we see. The things that we kind of take for granted because it just happens every day. Um, that's Elohim. The rules and the patterns and nature. Because obviously even nature was set up by God. But when we look at nature, we, it's very hard to see God. We just see nature, you know. We, we take nature for granted like that. Um... So there's basically two things going on. There's God revealing himself, that's Havaya, and then God concealing himself, that's Elohim. And another way that we call the, the concealment is we call it with the word symptom. Symptom literally means contraction, contracting. And um, it's God contracting that powerful, powerful light until it's dim enough for human beings to handle it. And the way that symptom works is that the letters of the alphabet are used to channel the very, very powerful light and to dim them and to make them less, um, less strong. If you can imagine holding transparent colored sheets um, in front of a light, right and then you see that everything becomes that color i think you see for example if you had sun uh, glasses colored glasses right you would see everything through that color and the same thing is you can imagine if there's a very powerful light and the letters of the alphabet are like those letters are like those sheets those colorful transparent sheets and each letter of the alphabet is taking this powerful light and basically turning it into a different color for the people to to perceive things differently to the original light. And the same thing is with the symptom that the letters of the alphabet are used to take the very, very, very powerful energy and light and to dim it, to make it that we can handle it. In the next chapter, the Alter Rabbi will ask a question. Um, if the symptom, the symptom is great, it's contraction and it's making that all the divine energy is is dim enough so that there are creations that can actually perceive themselves as, as independent creations that's wonderful um the altar Rebbe would will ask so isn't this all the world needs um shouldn't this be all like the world should just manage to exist with only the symptom part of things only the concealment part of things does there have to be anything else in the world for a successful world? Um, will the world manage to exist if there is only symptom? If there is only this contracted light?
and there is only this um, um, in creations who feel completely independent. Let's find out in the next chapter.